Well, today we just, uh, right as we came into our time of reading the text, man, Esther just did such a good job reading that. Um, amazing. Thank you to her. She's not in the room, but thank you to her. Or is she in the room? Okay. Thank you to her. I'll thank her later. You can always fist bump her later, too. So I'm sure she'll appreciate that. I think it's really important. I really just think it's important for us to affirm our kids, and as they step out and follow Jesus and trust, just to say that we've seen them and noticed them and value them and love them. So I would encourage you to do that in a non-creepy way. So right after, right before she read for us, we sang a song, He Will Hold Me Fast. And in that song, the song is a, it's a tender song. You know, it, it says, it's, it talks about fear and difficulty, and yet, He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. And then it talks about how I mess up, right? How we fall into sin, how we... We are foolish, and yet he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. There's a fair question. I think, I think that if a person, if this is your first Sunday here, there's probably a fair question. Like, why do we think that? Where did we come up with that? Are we just making up junk about Jesus to feel good about each other? And like, let's get a jingle. Let's put some Jesus words in here. Let's fluff it up and feel good. Is that where it comes from? Truth be told, you may always encounter people who are following Jesus or say they follow Jesus who do exactly that. They just make junk up about Jesus and they get excited about it. But we can't be that. The reason we can sing that song is because God has told us that for everyone who would cling to him, he will hold us fast. He will not let us go. He will be there in times of trial. He will be there as you repent as his child Loved by him, as you repent and grow through and past sin, more and more in the likeness of Jesus, he will hold you fast every day along that process, just as he did the first day, and just as he does the day he takes you home. He will hold you fast. Those are his promises. Those are his teachings. We didn't get those by sitting in the office on Thurman, that grand large facility over there and saying, hey, what are you thinking, Dempsey? I don't know. I think he's going to hold me fast. We got it by reading God's word. We keep going back to God's word. Our text today, which is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, I'd encourage you to turn there because we'll keep going back there and to read what we're going to be in our passage today about. In particular, so this is your first Sunday here, so I'm going to catch you up to speed. The book of 2 Timothy is written to a guy named Timothy. And it's written by a guy named Paul, but what's happening underneath it is the Spirit of God is inspiring this letter. The Spirit of God is writing this letter through Paul as Paul writes those full faculties to Timothy, a second letter to Timothy, probably the last letter that the Apostle Paul writes, most likely about two years before he is martyred and has his head taken off his shoulders by Nero in Rome. And so Timothy is a man that Paul has invested a lot in. He's a man of mixed Jewish and Gentile heritage, a man who grew up under the influence of a very godly grandma and a mom. We don't hear much about the dad. And then eventually, through mom and grandma, Timothy runs into Paul, and Paul mentors Timothy, and then becomes basically like a, a disciple of, of Paul's, and, and Paul would go and do ministry, and Timothy would travel with him, and sometimes Paul would say, I have to go to the next city and go, and Timothy says, I'll stay here, and I'll take care, and I'll bring this work to the next stage. I'll help establish things and fix things. And so Timothy did a lot for Paul. 
And Timothy's been left by Paul in a place called Ephesus. Ephesus, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. If you, read, if you read the book of Acts a lot, so you have, you have four books that kind of start off the New Testament. They're called Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and John. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are a lot alike. Luke is really juicy. He says the most. Luke just talks a lot. So Luke says a lot. He's a doctor. You probably couldn't read his writing. He says a whole lot. He speaks a bunch of chapters, a lot of details in the book of Luke. And then he writes Luke version 2, which we call Acts. Acts is written by Luke, and it's the it's continuing saga of what's happened. And basically, Luke becomes one of the great historians of the early church. And under, we understand the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the early church through what, a lot of what Luke has written. And as you read the account of Luke, Timothy shows up in it. Timothy's a major player in here, and a couple of cities particularly had major spots in church history. Jerusalem was a major, major town in, in, in the history of the church, as was a place called Antioch, which is quite a bit north of Syria. And then a third really, really large and significant church place was Ephesus. Ephesus. And that's where Timothy's at. This is where Timothy receives two letters. There's a book called Ephesians. It's written to the church of Ephesus. And we see even through Acts, there's all these ins and outs where almost every major player in the New Testament church comes through Ephesus. Yet in Ephesus, there is this battle for truth. Ephesus actually is located in the land of Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And in that spot there, wherever Paul would come into his ministry, people would come behind him, people that would come from a Jewish heritage, and come behind him and basically say, hey, Paul really started you guys off well, but let's finish the teaching. We're going to like... Well, if you really like Jesus, and that's great and all, let's go back to the Old Testament ways. Let's go back to the Old Testament laws. Paul says that, that Jesus took those off you, but not really. God really wants us to go back to that. That's what they would say. And so not only are we going to go back to the Old Testament ways, but actually some extra rules on top of that. And so we're going to spend a lot of time looking at genealogies and who begat who and who begat who because being Jewish is wonderful. It's all about being historically, genetically Jewish. And then from there into more fables and, and heretical things that would peel off the side of it, this group of people were going around to Paul's people teaching this all the time. And we see it in Galatians. Galatians is also, Galatia is also in Turkey. We see it in Galatia. We see it in Ephesus. We see it in Colossians. We see it in First and Second Timothy and Titus. All these places where this influence is coming in, and Paul is writing against it, warning them. So in our text today, he starts out with this in chapter 4. He's finishing off the letter. He's talking to Timothy, and he's, he's tagging on this great theme through this whole book of there is error out there, battle against error. For the sake of God's glory and for the sake of people, battle against error. And he starts off chapter 4, verse 1 with this. It's to Timothy. It's not to the church. It's to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge, literally about to judge, the living and the dead. So every person that's ever walked on the planet, all the dead ones, all the live ones, the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. So what Paul's doing is he's shifting in this letter and he's, he's graciously trying to get Timothy, like put his hands on Timothy's cheeks and look him in the eyes and saying, I want you to listen to me. And, I, and I'm, I'm making this, this as solemn as I can possibly do it. And the way he does it, he's not putting his hands on, on Timothy's cheeks and saying, like, look at me in the eye. Remember just your love for me. He actually references 
Christ. He calls us into a concept of worship. Because way before Timothy is ever a pastor guy, Timothy is a worshiper of the living God. And by worship, we don't mean a guy who sang hymns and songs, but a person whose whole life is dedicated to looking at Christ, delighting in Christ, magnifying Christ, Christ, serving Christ. That is Timothy. He's a worshiper. So Paul brings Timothy back to his fundamental identity. He goes, I charge you, and I charge you in the presence. So we, we do this all the time still. In weddings, it's pretty important. So we get a bunch of witnesses and a bunch of family together, and we go through this ceremony and these promises in front of all these people because we're saying, with everything I have, and in front of everybody I know, I mean this, right? So we, we make these, these, these covenant promises in the presence of all of these friends and family and witnesses. In a similar way, Paul's saying, I charge you, but it's not just you and me, Timothy. I'm, 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 I'm hauling you before the presence of God, and I'm laying this before you, before God. So look at what he says. And before God, the Father, right? The Father is here looking at you. And of Christ, Christ Jesus, that one, Jesus, who is on his horse at the gate getting ready to come back and judge the earth. Jesus is bouncing in the saddle. Like this is not Jesus, just this picture here is of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the throne. He goes, I'm referencing Jesus who is on his horse at the gate of heaven about to come back to this earth imminently. We don't know when, but he is coming next. And when he's coming, the word judge isn't necessarily a positive term for all the people that he's coming to judge. So he's coming to judge, and not only the one judging, but his appearing. Like the whole motivation behind him coming and incarnating, becoming a man and walking this earth, and then coming again. So his judging... His appearing on this earth, in fact, his whole kingdom, the whole thing, the whole worthwhile business of it. So, Timothy, it's you and me and Father and Son who is judging, about to judge everything, and is appearing in his kingdom. Everything in full light of these things, please, how will you respond? And he gives a series of imperatives for Timothy. So this, most of you guys are not a, a vocational Timothy. I happen to be. And Andrew happens to be. Uh, we happen to be, this is our full-time job. And then there's a number of us in the room who are pastors, just not our paid gigs to do that. They're really tired. Calls us for the Lord and says, I charge you solemnly before God himself brings it down to that. And so I want you to listen to these five verses today in two senses. Number one, know what God charges pastors to do. Number two, know what God is calling them to do to you. And when I say to you, I mean to me also, because I'm part of the church, right? Every pastor is simply part of the church. Pastors aren't over the church, they're part of the church. So I have to listen to this in two ways. I have to listen to what God calls all pastors to do through Paul. But number two, I'm always part of the church, always part of the church. And so God's Pastors need to do this to me, and I need to always be a part of pastors who are doing this to me actively in my life. And so you'll get to listen and say, okay, this is what God's calling Scott and Andrew and the rest of the pastors to do, and the next pastors in my life, wherever God takes me. But then number two, what is supposed to happen to me? What is supposed to happen to me? So this is a formal call. He's calling Timothy 
to do this, to, to assume this position, because Timothy is, first and foremost, a worshiper. So if God is worth it, if the judgment of the world of the worldwide and the severity and the purity of Jesus' judgment is true, and that's, what, that's something that, you know, when we take a first glance at Christianity, we may not understand. Je- Jesus isn't just benevolent, tossing out some, some kindnesses here and there. Jesus is so benevolent that he will remove the cancer of sin out of all things at some point in time. He's exercising patience and kindness right now as he sends the gospel into more and more people. But in the end, he is so kind and so benevolent that he will completely and perfectly excise sin out of all of existence. All sin will be judged. All sin will be removed. Um, And if you are on that side of the equation, still holding to darkness, still holding to sin, participating in it, because you can't simply be okay with sin without participating in it, um, it's extraordinarily bad news. You can't even escape the judgment by dying. That doesn't get you out. Jesus transcends death. Remember Jesus? He lived, he died, he rose again. He is the savior of the living and the je- dead and the judge of the living and dead. Jesus is at war with sin that is at war with Jesus. And all people, all people in humanity reside on one side of the war or the other. And we're all born on the dark side of the war. Every one of us, I was born on the dark side of the war. And so were you. And so you still are, unless you've heard the call of the message of Jesus Christ and have put your faith in Christ. Say, God, I don't want to be at war with you anymore. I want to belong to you. And the only way it's going to happen is I know Jesus died and rose again. So please, make me your man. Make me your woman. Woman. And it's only going to happen through the work of Jesus. And if it's worth it, if God's is worth it, his judgment is worth it, if his incarnation and his second return and his kingdom is all ultimately perfect and beautiful and wonderful, the call is, if it is that worth, we have to listen to what he's saying. This ultimately becomes an issue of me as a pastor, as all of us as Christians, standing before Jesus and saying, how will you respond to him? This is about response. Paul's asking Timothy, how will you respond? Consider this text. Titus 2, verses 11 to 13. When, when, uh, when he's putting this value on the return of Jesus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. So our first piece today is this. Oh, welcome to the Scott Burns show where I can't get my controller to work. Sometimes I turn it off. My apologies here. I'm in. Thanks. A little slow. I'm slow. Our first piece today is this. What will you say to him? Paul has called Timothy before the face of God where all worship resounds. What will you say to him? How will I, Scott Burns, reading this passage, how will I respond to the Spirit of God's call given through Paul to Timothy and to me? What will I say to him? How will I respond to him? My second question for you is, how will you respond to him? How will we respond? Kingdom living is not motivated by moments of life passion, nor nor simply awareness of a coming death, but rather 
by a sight of and a constant awareness of the presence of God who deeply cares about this day just as he did sending Christ, just as he did about Christ's judgment of the living and the dead and the investing and passion brought about in his eternal perfect kingdom. Kingdom Kingdom living is at the bottom about how are you responding to him and what he says. Here, Timothy is called to respond to him. We are all called to respond to him. Where are we called to respond to him at? Our second piece today is the word must lead. The word must lead. Look in verse 2. It says, here it is, the imperatives. Imperatives, in case you're new to grammar, it's a, you need to do this. These are the commands of God. Commands of the Spirit through Paul to Timothy. Number one, preach the word. Preach the word. Okay, so if you're new to the Bible, the word, word is kind of a funny word. Word, what is the word? Um, the word is always representative of what God is saying. It's the whole of his word, the whole of scriptures. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. So let's just break down a little bit of this here. First piece is this, he says, preach the word. He isn't saying coffee shop the word. He's actually saying preach it. This is the word for public proclamation. So God wants his word to be preached. That's what's happening at this very moment, I hope. Preaching the word, where we as people gather underneath somebody, hopefully who's done their homework, has studied God's word, is unpacking simply what the word says. So preaching is ordained by God, and it's what pastors have to do, and it's what we as Christians have to seek. You're outside of the will of God and outside the heart of God if you're not seeking preached word and you as a pastor are outside of the heart of God and outside of the mind of God if you are a pastor and you are not preaching and not only preaching, but preaching the word. The second part of the equation is not only do we preach, so proclamation is established by God, but if you're going to preach, it better be the word. It better be the word. I have not so fond memories of being in church services where people read out of um, the Reader's Digest. It's okay to reference it. You know I mean, it's okay for me to reference you or you to reference me. But we don't preach other the Reader's Digest. It's, it's a horrendous thing. We don't preach out of us having little strings of thoughts and just our passions and our ideas and things that are cool and neat. We are called to preach the word. Safest way and best way to do that is to preach the word of God, the whole of it, to move your way through it and not just um, strings of thoughts on that. The reason being, in case you're new to this, so this is our style of teaching here. We exposit scriptures. We're going through 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy right now. is because not only are, the, are those f- words there, but the words are in phrases or clauses, and those clauses are in sentences, sometimes compound, complex sentences, and those sentences then fit in paragraphs, and those paragraphs fit in books, and the books fit in to the greater canon of things. It's a dangerous thing. Anytime that there's a pulpit that's supposedly preaching God's word, and the people just simply get up and are just going to give you seven out of 3,500 things said about love, about giving, about politics, about marriage. We need to come to God's word and to unpack it. Um, ultimately, it has to be God teaching and transforming his people and not us, and that's done by his word rather than 
interesting things and stories and analogies. So once upon a time, I, I spoke at a camp. The first camp I ever spoke at out in the mountains of California. I was all excited about it. I was going to change the world. Junior high camp. And um, I got up there and talked. And, uh, you know, for some of you guys, most of you guys know this, I lived in Alaska for a little stint. And uh, I did a lot of outdoorsy things. And, and I have a, a fairly healthy stack of bear stories. And so uh, through this camp, I'm teaching, and I keep throwing out bear stories about black bears and grizzly bears and whatever, whatever. And I mean, they were all tied. It was out of Daniel, and I kept tying it back in, whatever. I felt pretty good about it. To be honest with you, I felt pretty good about it. And six months later, Melissa and I go to a different camp. And that, one of those churches that I had taught to were there. And the kids were like, hey, hey, Scott Burns, whatever. Have you seen any more bears? Bears, bears. Bears, 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 bears. Bears, 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 bears. And I, and I just, in the middle of all this, I just all of a sudden had this sinking reality of, they don't remember a stinking thing other than bear stories. Nothing. I even asked them, like, do you remember anything, the point? Like, no, bears, bears. And that was my introduction to things that I could say while preaching God's word that actually would cloud out God's world. And um, has, has helped me try to be careful over the years about things I say while I'm preaching because it has to be the word of God preached. If it's just simply a plausible argument or a heartfelt thing or an emotional tearjerker or it rhymes or I start making heavy breath things in between and long standing jingles of words or whatever the things are, it's got to be God through his word, by his spirit, doing his work in us. Or it's just junk. It's just junk. You can watch a bunch of TikTok videos and get better than that. The last thing we see in this text is, because of the way verse 2 is set up, we preach the word, ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort. Those three words are very much on the ground and personal words. Preaching is over the top, but reproving and rebuking, exhorting, that's coffee time. That's couch time. That's in our church's context, MC time and DNA meetings and stuff like that, where the word then is moved back and forth in between our lives. Because hard things happen. Because sin happens. Because there is purpose to our life. So we keep accessing the Word of God. So our, for us, Sunday morning pulpits are our time of our, of our major meal for the week, right? We offload the meal of the week and we digest it through conversations and relationships all throughout the week. And so the minister of the Word is both preached and extremely personal. It's both preached and extremely personal personal. It becomes our mainstay in our attention. So, in, in a pulpit, Word of God pulpit, and in us personally, it's, the Word is going to serve one of two things. It's going to be either where, the, where we live life and we bring it to the Word to fix it or amend it or change it or better it, or number two, we will start out life with the Word and ride the Word into life. It's very subtly in our hearts every time we come to read. Uh, personally, or, or listen, I have the stuff, the stuff, the reality, the big stuff of life is this stuff, and I need God to fix it. I need God to change it. I need God to help me. Those kind of things. So will I be life first, Word second, 
Or will we be people of the word in pulpit and in, in our personal lives where we are going to God's word, getting into God's mind, and then we ride God's mind into life? One will lead the other. And it's not easy. It's a battle. I feel it all the time. How many times have I opened up the, the word reading in my quiet time and I go, what is this going to mean for me? Wrong question. Wrong question. Back out, back out. All right. Lord, so I come to your word. Your word is truth. I need your mind. My world's swirling out there. It always will swirl out there. Give me your heart. Give me your mind. And let me ride that into my life. We even, do, we even try to practice this in prayer. So about five or six years ago, a lot of you guys would, some of you guys would remember this, but most of you guys would recognize this in our church. God, through a series of influences, taught our church how to pray and one of the biggest ways we learned how to pray was how to pray out of the word not first out of life so i think that okay scott brennan's group as a church kid one of the worst things you could ever invite me to was a church prayer meeting worst number one we hardly ever pray we usually just share prayer requests number two dogs and grandmas dogs and grandmas dogs and grandmas Life, 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 life. All right, let's pray about that life, right? But then through God's kind influences for us, a bunch of us about five or six years ago, we learned how to go to the Word and pray Word first and see that does phenomenal, altering, life-changing perspectives on us when we do that. So I thought I'd just demonstrate with my handy clicker today kind of how we do that. So um, in case you haven't been with us as we pray, this is how we kind of train all of our leaders to pray and to pray with our MCs. And my clicker is dead. Okay, thanks. So, okay, so here's a verse we just read not too long ago. Titus 3, verses 3 to 7. Uh, I'm not going to read it again because you heard me read it. What does it mean for us to pray out of Scripture? If we're going to preach the Word and we're going to pray the Word, what does it mean? Um, one of the first things we do is we encourage people to read it, and then we pray through the things it says about who God is and what he's done. There we go. Okay, so I've kind of highlighted some words. This is not all the words. These are just some of them. So when we do this in our MCs or on Tuesday morning or if you guys come, where's Mark Molesbury? This man comes, 945, back there every Sunday morning. If you'd like to pray or learn how to pray, come pray with him. This is how he does it. Okay? We basically read a text of scripture like this, and then we just kind of go freestyle, short, simple prayers, about things that God has done or who he is. So, for instance, when you're going through this passage here, here are things, and not all the things we could pray, but we, I could praise God and say, God, I praise you because you're good. You are good. And you're full of loving kindness. And you are our God. There is no other. And I might pray about the fact that you've appeared. You didn't just stay in heaven. You actually became a man and walked this earth. And you saved us. You are the Savior. And you're full of mercy. I mean, Christians, do we not know he's full of mercy? It's, and you've regenerated us, you brought us to new spiritual life and a renewal of the Holy Spirit. So if you put your spirit in us, so I thank you for giving us your spirit. And you poured him out richly on us, so you're not stingy with him. Like you've really given us the spirit with full measure. So being justified, oh God, you justified us because, because Emma Gill, she's a sinner. She's really a sinner, and she really needs a Savior. And Jesus stood and took her sin and gave her his righteousness, and she is justified forever before the throne of God, and he will hold her fast. So I praise you for being a justifier, and is full of grace, full of grace. 
You're a God of grace. You're not a merit counter. You're a grace giver. Those are all just different ways that we might pray. Just a ton of things. I mean, just at first when you think about how to pray about God out of the Scripture, you may not see it, but then all of a sudden you see all the pieces of, of God being in here. Or then we then move from there to praying about us and who he's made us to be. So first, who God is and what he's done. Second is like who we are and what we do. So here's a number of things of who we are and what we do. Number one, we ourselves once were. So no longer, for me as a Christian, these were me, but not anymore. But they were me. And because they were me, I, God, I'll not, I can't look down at anyone around me because they were me. I was foolish, disobedient, led astray. I was full of various passions and pleasures. Okay, hold that theme right there, passions and pleasures. I was driven by passions and pleasures. Hated by others and hating them because I didn't love them. But then, then you've saved us. I'm now saved. You're holding me fast. And not because of works. Jesus, I am, I am secure because of you. And your righteousness is not because of me. And your own mercy, and because, God, you have mercy, I want to be merciful. There's no way that you're going to show mercy and grace on me and then I'm going to stick it to my man next to me. Like, if you're full of mercy, I want to be just like you. By the washing, and so I'm clean now. I was not kind to my wife yesterday, but now I'm now clean by that, by the blood of Jesus. Of regeneration, so I'm not the old Scott Burns that grew up in the Antelope Valley. I'm now a new Scott Burns that was born again, whom he poured out richly. So God, I now have the Spirit and you don't just barely give me the Spirit, so, give, so you give us the Spirit. So let me know, know what it means to look to the Spirit and pray in the Spirit and operate in the Spirit. Don't might become heirs. God, this world isn't my ultimate home. This world, all the world belongs to me. I'm an heir with Jesus. We're all heirs with Jesus. So let us not be like coveting a house with another 500 square feet or another four-wheeled rolly object that I'm going to break a sweat over, it's going to break down, or going on a trip to Jamaica. You're going to freaking own Jamaica someday, so don't break a sweat about being there sometime. Like, I own all these things. I'm an heir with you and to the hope of eternal life. I live in hope, not by sight right now. I live by faith, and I live for what something is coming, and I have eternal life. So, when our friends pass, and in the room today, I know that there are a handful of us that have had people that are close to us that have passed in the last two weeks. We live now with him, and we live eternally with him. Praise you, God, for that. And if that's the case, let us not live like temporary people. That's just an example of how to pray the word, right? Two, two phases. First of all, pray about God. Number two, how does he shape us then, right? So just a simple thing. Come pray with us on Tuesday morning. Come pray with Mark back here at 945 on Sunday mornings. Pray with your MCs. But, my friends, and then after that, all those things, dogs and grandmas and everything you have, bring them to the table. But we've already set the table. We are not impoverished beggars anymore. We sit under the full love of God who holds us fast and cares for us. It's a much different way of preaching. It's a much different way of praying because we find ourselves in God before we first charge into life and then try to add God to him, we first start in his word and then ride his word into life. All right. So our first piece, our first bullet point is this, what we say to him. It's all about worship and the presence of God. Number two, the word must lead. And we just gave you guys an example of what it meant to, to pray out of the word. So ultimately, each person in each church is either led by or dismisses the heart and passions of God 
found in his word. It's either going to be life or it's going to be the word. Our third piece is this. It is a war of passions. It's a war of passions. Verse 3. Check it out. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, so having things they really want to hear, they will accumulate for themselves teachers. They'll find them, teachers, to suit something. To suit something that drives it. Suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So myths here are a current trend in Turkey where false teachers are coming to the Christians and kind of tapping back and twisting old Judaism and trying to bring it onto them in mythic ways. So for us as believers, don't be surprised. It's not unusual for people to be to like like biblical teaching for a while. It's really, really common. So this passage here is not about your neighbor that doesn't know Jesus and doesn't claim to be a Christian. This is all t- contextually talking about people who are Christians who are claiming to be Christians. And it's not uncommon for people to like biblical teaching for a while. Why? Because it has power. God's word has power. And even when you're not believing it, you're sensing it to some degree. It's, it's, it's the divine maker is speaking into your soul. And you may resist it, and you may say, well, he doesn't have the right to say that. But it doesn't change the fact that he is saying that. And that creation is hearing creator in that. So it has power. It is the most consistent worldview that we'll ever, ever, ever encounter. No other worldview in all the world will ever have the sourcing consistency of the scriptures. Of where any good or evil is found. Any can or can't. Any lovely or non-lovely. The most consistent love encounter is full of powerful truth. It's full of gracious love. I mean, he will hold me fast. You just can't go outside and wander around the, 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 the forest and come up with an idea and, and really bank on the fact that some deity that made the place is going to hold you fast versus zap you because you're zap worthy. You know you're zap worthy. I know I'm zap worthy. He told us that we're zap worthy, right? But instead, grace, the hold is fast. And so it's full of gracious love. And hopefully it's found, and praise God, this is true here, it's found in amidst the context of people who really reflect that in an ever-growing way. Um, Cross State Church, I love you guys. I think you guys model this so well in so many ways that we're growing in it. Oh, there's ways we haven't grown in it, but there's so many ways we are growing in this. So there, it doesn't, doesn't surprise us. People do like solid biblical teaching for a while. But here's the problem. Unmistakably, the word summons you. It's, it's not just man's words. It's God's word. And he's just not throwing 411 around. He is summoning you. All of you. And his words, Jesus' words, to come and die that you may live. And that will tick you off eventually and make you walk unless you find life in it. And for a little while, you can try to, to, to sand them down and make those two things work. They're like, oh yeah, I like, I like my life and I like this incoming Jesus stuff and it really makes me better, makes my marriage better, makes my finances better. I actually have friends. People don't throw me down the stairs. All those kind of things. I have this now. But eventually, the word of God summons you to come and die that you may live. What dies? You your old passions. Something new, now Christ lives in you and his passions are now your main passion. 
But if we don't come to the end of our passions, and we determine that our passions and our perceived pleasures are too worthy of being laid down at the feet of this crazy King Jesus, this one who's not that loving, not that sacrificial, not that authoritative, not that weather-altering, not that coming to judge the living and the dead and the sons of men, and the one who is definitely not the king of a better kingdom coming. When we find that our passions and pleasures are better than him, we move on from him. But there's something in our self-righteousness that still likes to have a flair of him. So this is what happens in Turkey. This is what's happening towards the New Testament. People were moving on from him into something like him. They still liked the brand. They still wanted the sign of the fish on their ox carts and stuff like that. They still wanted Jesus' identification. They just didn't want what he said. They wanted to make Jesus in their own image. And so there's a whole industry of false teachers who capitalize on that. What drove them? It says in this verse, to suit their own passions. We are driven people. We are driven by passions. Either our passions or God's passions. Let me just tell you, Scott Burns has got a bunch of passions. I, every, every week I've got a whole new set of ten things. They're like, ooh, that'd be interesting. Oh, that'd be neat. It's just all over me. If you know me, I don't need to go for the detail. If you don't know me, let's have coffee. You'll find this out soon. I have an inbound flood of passions that come on me all the time. But I'm a child of God now. Those passions aren't my passion. And in this letter already, Paul's been warning Timothy, hey, Timothy, you got a flood of passions coming in too. Let's deal with this. Here's a couple of verses. In 2 verse 4 of this book, Paul tells Timothy, a good soldier does not get entangled with earthly affairs. Watch out for those passions that bind you down. In 2.22, he says, flee youthful passions, Timothy. Flee them. Don't let them get their arms around you. In 3.3, it talks about the world, they are defined as people who love pleasures. In 3.5, it talks about weak people, weak people around the church who are people who are controlled, driven by passions. See, Christ hasn't brought the new passion yet. They're still driven by passions, various earthly things, lovers of pleasure. He goes on to say similar things in the book of, in the book of Titus as well. Godish Godish seasoning of earthly passions has always been super appealing to Christians and, and confessing Christians. To allow a spot where I can have all my stuff and all my current loves and season it with some Godish stuff. That's primo for a lot of us. But it is in Christ. And there's a time where we will sit around biblical teaching, but after a little while we realize that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is replacing the old life, bringing a new life. And the reality is, inside of you will be a temptation to say, no, my passions really are better. But my friends, two things. Number one, test it. Are really your passions better? Are they really? How well they treated you for 42 years? How deeply satisfied are you? How full of joy and hope? Why are you sitting here in the first place? Because they're not satisfying. They are lies. They do not bring you hope. They do not bring you joy. They do not bring transformation of life. They do not let you live forever. They are lies and they are dead ends. That's why you're here. That's why you're listening in the first place. Number two, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. 
Jesus says, I spoke these things to you, book of John, I spoke these things to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. He says in the book of John, chapter 16, I speak these things to you that you might have peace in me. His passion brings peace. His passion brings joy. His passion brings hopes. Your onboard native ones, they don't. Everything you experience, it's neato. It's neato. And then it goes away. Every person you kiss, they go away. Every love, it fades. Everything, it rusts. Every dollar gets taxed. Our onboard passions don't satisfy, but God's does. The person who falls away from God is a person driven by their own passions. My question for you, what is your core passion? Are your passions, your individual constitution of passions, is that really in the end what drives you? Or is it Christ, God, his will, his passions? Only God can free you of that. So there's the initial piece. You come to Jesus and say, God, I don't want to be a person of passions and pleasures anymore. I want to be yours. Please do this work. Save me. Bring me regeneration, as that text said. And then the reality is, for each of us as Christians, we fight to endure it. We keep going in it. That's why Paul says, that's why Paul says, keep in it. You remember in that text, or this verse here in verse 3, it says this. It starts off with the word for. Do you remember that? After it says preach the word, it says for, these things will happen. There's a connection after preach the word, exhort, rebuke, those kind of things. Then he says do it with all patience. Teaching for people will do this. The solution, the best thing we can do for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters that are around us, because we will be battling uprising onboard passions, is the consistent, long ministry of the word in one another's lives, both preached and then on the ground. That is the answer of it. If you look at how do I know that, look at verse 2, the last five words with complete patience in teaching. That little phrase there is what describes the imperatives that go before it. Preach the word, be ready, rebuke, exhort. How do you do it? You do all of them with patience, with patience and with teaching. So with that long, patient love, keep going after them, keep going after them. And when they blow you off, keep going after them in love. And when they get sidetracked, Keep going after them. What do you go after them? You go after them with love and you go after them with truth. The teaching piece, right? We go back to the word that we learned in the first place. It is the tool God's given us. Brothers and sisters, you can't change anybody. You can't change the unbeliever and you can't change the believer. But for us as people, number one, we need to continue to sit under the long word of God in order to do battle against our hearts following various passions. And number two, as us believers, with people that we know and love, God has called all of us to the long ministry of the word with patience in one another's lives. Not just coming on a service, that's important, but the long ministry of the word where we listen to God's word and then we tangle over God's word. We go, hmm, Sudsy, what do you think about that? What do I think about that? How does this work? How are you believing? What are the passions in your life? Well, what are the passions in your life? How has God freed us? How has he us, propelled us? What are your most dangerous passions? I'm kind of curious. What are my most dangerous ones? Where are we at threat? Where are we at threat? The answer is we walk 
in prayer and patient love over the Word of God with one another because it is the solution. It is the tool to battling against Christians and proclaiming Christians' tendency to be off-tracked by various passions and find teaching sources that help that. So let's be in the Word. Let's be in love. Care for with one another. It takes mind clarity and heart diligence to make sure you are looking for the right thing in teaching and church life. I'll say it again. It takes mind clarity and heart diligence to make sure you're looking for the right thing in teaching and church life. And our last piece is this, and it's very brief. I invite you guys mostly just to listen to this. These are the following, following imperatives, and they're given to pastors. If you want to know how to pray for your pastors, here's some of the things you pray for. And brothers in the room, my fellow pastors, I encourage you guys to hear this and take this call of God upon you. Number one, as for you, always be sober-minded. Enduring suffering, do the work of evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So brothers, pastors, me, number one, always be sober-minded. We're never off. We're never off. It may be the inebriation from drugs, alcohol, entertainment, sports, money, um, too many side hustles, whatever it is, don't be inebriated. Be sober-minded. Have your heads on your shoulders looking forward. We are under shepherds of the great shepherd. We watch out for wolves, and we watch out for sheep in need. Stay sober-minded. Number two, endure suffering, brothers. Believe and be brave to endure suffering. Our world is continuing to change. Opportunity for sufferings will come. They will come most likely to the hands of social suffering, more than sticks and stones, but they may get to that as well, or knives. Be brave and believe, and don't give up in suffering. Number three, brothers, actively engage the surrounding world with the gospel. We as pastors can never isolate from the unbelievers and just hang out with the Christians and talk in-house gospel talk. We always must be on the ground doing the work of evangelists. We must always be out amongst people who don't know Jesus, engaging with them, loving them. Not just loving to them, doing the work of evangelists, good newsing them, learning how to speak the gospel of Jesus to the unbelievers. And finally, brothers, the fourth one, fulfill your ministry. Work to fill out the ministry that God has assigned you. You've been appointed as a pastor in our church and I've been a pastor, appointed as a pastor church, not only by our church, but more importantly by God himself. It's a ministry that God has given you. It's not just a chair of honor that you've come to at some point, but assigned by the Lord. It's not a reputation. And Christ is assigning each of us to uniquely invest into the lives of God's children that he's bringing us into contact with. And his call for us is to point them towards Jesus, to love them and point them towards Jesus and let them understand him by understanding his word. We are a word-centric group of under-shepherds. We always have to be. They do not need you. They do not need me. They need Jesus. So be rich in the word, strong in faith. Pray your heart out for the connection of God's mind and heart into our people. Let's be people of the word. And brothers and sisters, the rest of us, you can pray that for our pastors. That's what they need to be. 
So in conclusion, this is all a worship issue before the face of God for both the pastor and the church. This is all stuff done before God who is real, Jesus who is real and is ready and is coming to judge the living and the dead, Jesus who has appeared, who could have sat in all of eternity and just let us rot it out, but he didn't. He appeared to us. He's that tender. And the Jesus who is building a kingdom of which we are part and we will eternally enjoy, in honor of all of that and before his face, how will you respond to him? Leader, pastor, will you present the word be in the word, present the word. And for all of us people, will we pursue the word? Will we go to the only place we will ever know the mind of God, which is the word of God? You do not have the mind of God in your head without the word of God. So brothers and sisters, how will we respond to him? Will we be people of the word? Number two, the work of ministry of the word is corporately preached in sermons and individually applied in each other's lives in the, in, the, in the regular fellowship and shepherding of the church. And it's done in long-term loving patience. It's not just love, and it's not just one time, and it's not just the word, but it is the word over time in love, committed to one another. And number three, my question for us all as we go out, what drives you? What drives you? Christian, do you know the war of passions in your heart? Until you go home to be with Jesus, perfectly loved by him, you will have a unique set of passions that will always be coming into you. It's called flesh. Galatians tells us the flesh wars against the spirit, the spirit wars against the flesh. They don't mutually coexist. There's a battle going on. Are you aware of the combatants in your heart? Are you aware how persuasive they are to you? Are you aware of the way they emotionally pull on you? You need to become aware of them and give them to Jesus. What you can actually do is give them all to Jesus before you become aware of them. Say, God, I don't want to be just this flesh person driven by my own flesh. Lord's Prayer, right? Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. That's it. Lead us not into temptation. Temptations are the passions rising up. They don't even have to be bad ones. They're just rising up and they're overkill and they drive us. When our passions become our drivers, we are idolaters. Brothers and sisters, confess that to Christ, that you have those. Ask the Lord and ask your brothers and sisters to help you figure out what they are for you personally. And cling to Christ and ask him for his passion, his mind, his heart found in his word to be the thing that drives you. Let's pray. Jesus, please, through the power of your spirit, since you have seen so fit to bring this to our minds, please now, by the power of your Spirit, push it through to our hearts. Through the preached word, through the word, pushed through in fellowship and shepherding, Father, please let us be a people of one passion, which is you, not driven by various passions. Please let your word be rich in us. Let it dwell richly in us. May be rich in our pulpit always. May be rich in our fellowship always. May we love your word because of what it is. It is the mind and the heart of a perfect God, complete in holiness, perfect in power, full of steadfast love, coming again to judge the living and the dead. 
and one who is making a perfect kingdom. And Lord, may we believe that and may that win our souls. Believe this is what you're talking about when you say hallow your name. So only you can hallow your name. We bring ourselves to you. Please hallow your name in our hearts and make us your kingdom come and will be done. And it's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.